This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hello, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 45. And in this episode, I'm in conversation with Beth Breeze. Now, Beth is an academic and director of the Centre for Philanthropy at the University of Kent here in the UK. Um, and she's written and researched very widely on kind of all sorts of things to do with philanthropy. Um, she uh, did the Million Pound Donors Report for about 10 years in partnership with Coots. Um, and her latest book is The New Fundraisers, Who Organises Charitable Giving in Contemporary Society? Um, so I've known Beth for quite a while. It was great to get her on the podcast. Um, and we had a chat kind of about the academic study of philanthropy and kind of questions about why it's important um, to study philanthropy at an academic level, um, what that actually entails, how that academic research and insight feeds into practice and policy. Um, how you go about teaching philanthropy because one of the things that the Centre for Philanthropy at Kent does is teach a master's course in philanthropy um, who who it is who comes and learns uh, as part of that course what it is they learn um, and then we we moved on to talk a bit about the work that Beth's done particularly around fundraising the importance of the asking side of, of the philanthropic equation uh, what makes for a good fundraiser uh, kind of whether fundraising is sometimes undervalued in the wider context of charity. Um, and then we had a bit of a talk at the end about the, the sort of context around philanthropy at the moment and the narrative about it and whether a lot of the critiques and criticisms coming from the US uh, actually rang true here in the UK and whether they you know might be unhelpful in terms of the ambition of kind of getting a, a healthier culture of, of philanthropy over here. So without further ado, I'll go into the conversation. I hope you enjoy it and I will be back at the end of the podcast just for a little bit of housekeeping. Okay. Okay, so I'm here with Beth Breeze. Hi, Beth. Hello there. And Beth is the director of the Centre for Philanthropy at the University of Kent and has researched and written widely on all sorts of things to, to do with philanthropy. But uh, before I jump the gun, maybe you'd like to kind of explain a bit in your own words about your background and, and interest in philanthropy and how you come to these issues. Sure, thanks. And nice to be asked to be part of the Giving Thoughts podcast. Um, so I've been interacting with donors for about 20 years now. The first 10 of them, I was working as a fundraiser and a charity manager. So I had lots of questions about you know, who gives and why and what's going on in that world. And I spent the second 10 years trying to answer some of those questions. So I came to the University of Kent to do my PhD on contemporary philanthropists. Um, and I've stayed here to set up the Centre on Philanthropy, where we now research and teach and do public engagement on philanthropy that's great um and sort of what uh you know as a kind of broad starting question one thing i'm interested in is the the question of kind of why philanthropy 
is increasingly being seen as a, as an academic discipline. I mean, what was your the kind of driving motivation for you behind getting the master's course at Kent set up, and what was the sort of the ambition and the aim of doing that? Sure, I felt quite strongly that we need to take philanthropy more seriously um, and devote more energy to trying to understand it. Um, I mean, it's all around us. We live in a in a society that's saturated with philanthropy, um, and yet really hardly notice it and don't ask questions of it and don't understand. Uh, what's going on. So that was my main motivation. I didn't come at it from a particularly disciplinary perspective or a theoretical perspective. It was simply, why are we ignoring this this huge part of our our lives? Um, And I sometimes set my students a challenge and say, can you get through 24 hours without in some way benefiting from a philanthropic act of the past or the present? Uh, And you really can't. You go to a museum, a gallery, a swimming pool, uh, and you're going to be benefiting from a previous philanthropic gift. Uh, you get on your bicycle and put on a helmet or sit in a car where someone's not smoking and you're benefiting from the campaigns that people have done around uh, living more safely. And those are just two sort of fairly small examples. So philanthropy saturates us where, you know, it's, it's everywhere. And yet we just weren't thinking about it or studying it. And it struck me that if every university could have a department devoted to politics and policy, so social policy and politics departments, and pretty much every university has got a business school, uh, why did they not all have a centre or a school looking at philanthropy and non-profit action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I obviously naturally agree, given the sort of thing that I work on. Do you, do you think in some ways you mentioned there about not kind of coming to it from a particular disciplinary point of view? Do you think philanthropy kind of has historically suffered from that? The fact that it, it kind of is by its nature very cross-disciplinary. So it's kind of, you know, you can bring in elements of history and politics and psychology and economics. But actually, because of that, it often falls between lots of different schools um, in terms of the kind of traditional silos of academia and, and therefore might be something somebody might pick up once in a while or do one paper on, but then they'd go off and, and do something else. Yeah, I think that's right. I think within academia, if you can be more firmly rooted within one discipline, then that you know probably helps your career or makes your life a bit simpler. But we can't get away from the fact that philanthropy is multidisciplinary. I mean, I've got as much to talk about with somebody who's a historian or an anthropologist or psychology or law. Um, you know, they all have uh, interesting things to say about uh, studies on philanthropy. So you, you couldn't pigeonhole it into one uh, school or discipline that would be uh, to deny the, the, the essence of philanthropy, really. And um, what I worry about is that it's very often in business schools uh, and business has got, you know, a, a role to play along with the other disciplines. But at the moment, it seems rather dominant, certainly in the UK and Europe. So we're in a social policy school uh, and I'd love to see more um, philanthropy academics based anywhere but business schools just to have a bit of balance, really. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think it, it does kind of then it skews everything towards those questions about kind of how you do the practice of philanthropy and, and questions of you know effectiveness and models and everything, which is all important. But then all of that stuff that comes from uh, a kind of legal point of view or a social policy point of view gets gets slightly kind of left somewhere in the ether. That's right. And, and just just on that, it's also even more basic. I once asked a business colleague, you know, why why should it be in your your school? And they said, well, you know, if you're a philanthropist, you're, the money's coming from people who've made money in business, as if there was no other kind of philanthropy, as if there wasn't you know people giving money um, who who weren't entrepreneurial or hugely rich. Um, so it really it almost um emphasizes this rather mistaken idea that a philanthropist looks like a certain kind of person who is an entrepreneurial business person rather than understanding that pretty much everybody 
gives at some point and benefits at some point. So so that's my concern about pigeonholing it into business as well. Yeah, no, good good point. Um, and kind of what, in terms of the sorts of questions that you think, you know, get, given that are important to try and address if you are studying philanthropy more broadly outside of the context of a business business school, what, what are the kind of examples of things that you think in a, in a master's course or in a research program for philanthropy we should be trying to get to grips with? Sure. So I think we're still um, at a fairly early stage. We still need to do a lot of mapping, a lot of, you know, what actually is going on out there. If you don't know uh, the landscape, it's very hard to understand the landscape. So that's wonderful that that kind of work is being done. What I'm personally most interested in is moving away from sort of individual level studies, of which there are many, and to make taking a bit more of a macro contextual uh, level perspective so you know instead of studies that say do men or women give more or do people who are religious give more or less so actually saying what kind of community what kind of society uh, what kind of business or school or any other institution um, is more or less likely to facilitate philanthropy um, I, I find those kind of questions much more interesting um, than the ones that have this very micro level on uh, focus on individuals yeah, I agree. I mean, I think the um, point Rob Reich makes and others have made it about the fact, you know, philanthropy is odd, really, because it is sort of inherently about individuals and their voluntary choices. But then also when you add all of those things up, it suddenly becomes at an aggregate level, a kind of systemic part of society and a mechanism for redistribution. And actually, those two different perspectives lead you to ask very different questions and get very different answers. And, and there probably has been too much focus on the the individual and the micro I, I totally agree and also that most giving is is collective even if it's not consciously collective you know when I send my 10 quid to Oxfam it's only worthwhile doing because everyone else is sending 10 quid you know that one 10 quid can't achieve anything so even if I'm not giving in a sort of formal giving circle or giving group and they are increasing in popularity uh, for various reasons but even if I'm not doing it explicitly collectively pretty much every gift we give relies on other people giving as well so again it's a bit of a mistake to focus on that that individual level yeah absolutely um and i'd like to come on in a bit to sort of talk specifically about kind of you know major donor and high net worth philanthropy not not because i think you know that is what philanthropy is or that it's more important than kind of uh more mass market or more kind of um philanthropy at at a lower level but i guess in a way it brings its own research challenges um but just before we we kind of go on to that um one of the 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 questions you know i'm sort of interested in about researching philanthropy is obviously it has interest in its own right because there are all these sort of questions that we don't yet know the answers to but but in your work is there any sense of an uh an ambition to try and influence either philanthropists themselves or kind of philanthropic funders like foundations or policymakers uh and if so kind of you know how how do you go about doing that sure and um, thanks for asking about that because i think um, although i do think we need to understand philanthropy better for its own sake because it's a really important part of society very much i'm driven by an applied rationale you know that there are many practitioners out there many uh, many donors fundraisers grant makers um, who deserve a better evidence base for what they're doing, who, who want to better understand the landscape in which they're working. So, so yes, I'm, I'm not a, a theory builder for its own sake kind of person. It's, you know, if, if the material can't be 
um, of interest eventually. It doesn't have to be immediately useful, uh, but if it doesn't eventually have some sort of practical application, then I'm probably less interested in, in studying it. I'm very happy if colleagues are, are doing that kind of work, but it's not what I would choose to do. And I'm sure that's rooted in the fact that I was a practitioner for 10 years and, you know, continue to fundraise really for my own centre, uh, for causes that I'm involved in in my personal life. Uh, and that's what's interesting as well. We're not only pretty much all donors, we're pretty much all fundraisers. Um, you know, giving and asking are, are, are both equally commonplace in our lives. So I'm very interested in that. You asked, though, about how you get that out there. Well, I mean, there is, as I'm sure you know, a real debate now in academia about having impact, and we're all expected to have impact. Uh, it, that seems to me fairly uncontroversial. I, I don't know any colleague who does their research and writes it up and, and hopes that no one ever reads it or does anything about it. Uh, and I think it really is as simple as that, it's making sure that our material is, is accessible, uh, and that means accessible language as well as an accessible format, um, to those people who can who be interested and can do something with it. Um, so I love going out and talking at conferences of practitioners. I'll say yes to any meeting with policymakers who want to talk about um, you know, charitable giving in, in all its different dimensions. So I think it's about having one foot in academia, but one foot firmly in, in the world in which your academic research has some kind of salience. Absolutely. And it's good to hear. Um, I mean, I guess one other way it occurs to me in which you're sort of directly having a, an impact in terms of uh, getting those ideas out there is the fact that as well as researching philanthropy, you're teaching it as, as part of a master's course. Um, out of interest, like what sort of people, you know, what's the kind of standard profile of people taking that course? Or is there a standard profile? Sure. Yeah. We um, So we launched the Master's uh, in Philanthropic Studies in September 2016. And it was the first master's degree in this topic outside of North America. Um, and, you know, it was a bit of a gamble. Um, we I, I had a strong hunch that there was an unmet demand by people who wanted to study at postgraduate level this topic. But you can't have any, find any evidence for that, really. Who would you ask? So in the absence of any sort of business plan where I could guarantee student numbers in the future, I had to sort of practice what I preached and go and talk to those who could help me make this idea happen. And I was incredibly lucky to get support from Pairs Foundation, who have a, a long-standing interest in supporting uh, philanthropy research and encouraging more and better philanthropy. So we got the MA off the ground by having a, a colleague funded, fully funded by Pairs Foundation for three years. And our, our promise to the funder was that after three years, we'd have enough student numbers that their fees would cover that salary. And I'm, I'm very pleased and relieved to, to tell you that that did come to pass, that by, by the year three of our um, student registration, we have enough uh, student numbers, which is about 20 a year. And that's a nice number. Any more than that, you can't really know everybody. So every year we have about 20 people. Most of them are working in the philanthropy charity sector. I'd say the most common job role is fundraiser. But often they're combining fundraising with you know, maybe running the charity or doing communications or uh, some other kind of role within the charity. And they're pretty typical that people don't only get, uh, do one thing. Um, but we also have people who are in grant making. We have people who are philanthropy advisors. Uh, we have people who would like to work in the sector and haven't yet got there. So it's a really nice mix. And I, I love it. I love uh, spending time teaching and interacting with people who are doing it and studying it because they're really that, that's that's me <laughs> they're, they're kind of that's me 10 years ago um, and if every year we produce 20 new graduates who've spent two years reading and thinking about all the different issues and really get into the nitty-gritty of um, ethical issues and practical issues uh, we, we very much look at the art and the science of philanthropy and fundraising uh, then I hope that will help 
uh, improve practice in the sector. And we have our very first graduates this, this July at Canterbury Cathedral. The words MA in Philanthropic Studies will be read out for the first time at a UK graduation ceremony. And I will be bursting with pride when I see those students come up to graduate. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, and over over the time that you've been doing it, have you kind of learned anything yourself um, that, that's led you to kind of refine what's in the course so that you thought, oh, actually to, you know, to, to make this more focused, you know, we're, we need to kind of double down on these bits or, or perhaps add in extra elements? Absolutely. I mean, like, yeah, I hope most of us are, are as responsive as we can be in, our, in whatever we're doing. So we absolutely um, constantly ask the students how they found the readings, how they found um, the lectures and so on. I'd say a couple of the main developments have been one is that we've more internationalised the curriculum. Um, So, you know, we can't get away from the fact that we are in a UK university. Um, You can't teach every regulatory system, every tax uh, system. So, of course, it was fairly UK focused. But we do have students because it's a distance learning course. We have um, probably a, a fifth of students based in other countries. Um, and so they and also the UK based students who are, have got maybe charities that work around the world or donors living in other countries have um, asked us and encouraged us to take a, um, a more global perspective. And I'm very glad that they've done that. So that's probably been uh, one of the main uh, developments that we've had. Um, I just want to pick up on a, a couple of things you've already uh, sort of mentioned a, a little bit that I know um, kind of been a big part of your work. One one is around the the sort of fundraising side, because I know you, you mentioned that's kind of, you know, your background was as a fundraiser for a long time. And you've continued to, to do that in your, your academic career because obviously it kind of remains necessary to do that. Um, but it, it, it sort of really interests me because often there is a lot of focus on the, the supply side of philanthropy and kind of the motivations of, of individual donors or, you know, all kind of philanthropic institutions. But actually, in order to make philanthropy possible, you know, any successful example of philanthropy you can look at, usually there is some element of somebody asking because that's kind of necessary driver. You know, what what's your kind of perception uh, of the the role that fundraisers play in, in that ecosystem of philanthropy? Yeah, no, thanks for asking about that. I mean, I began by saying that philanthropy is a bit overlooked. Well, that's nothing compared to how much fundraising is overlooked. I mean, at least there are some blue plaques to to, to philanthropists and there's some names of philanthropists that are in the general kind of consciousness. You know, people have heard of Carnegie and Rockefeller and maybe Anissa Roddick and Richard Branson. Ask them to name a fundraiser. They're not going to have anything to to say in response to that question. So, um, so the the invisibility of fundraising is even more acute uh, than the invisibility of philanthropy, and and I just think that's quite an interesting starting point for research. You know why? Um, and I think part of the answer is it's, it's intentionally um, backstage. Um, you know, fundraisers as professionals tend to um, work to help donors realise their goals and ambitions, and they don't wish to have the spotlight on them. They they're trying to help and support other people who've got resources to to put those um the altruistic intentions into action uh, and there's you know a fair body of research which shows that you know most of us have you know, it's very common to have the capacity and the, the desire to do good but actually doing it actually um acting on those uh, instincts um is more varied um, and there does seem to be a correlation between having a professionalized fundraising sector and raising more money so as your grandma would say, if you don't ask, you don't get. It's a fairly simple uh, sort of basis to this. So that's what I'm really interested in. How do the donors and the, the fundraisers together make good things happen? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's I, I think this is really interesting because, like, to on the one hand, I often get a sense that as as a nation, the UK, we're quite good at you know, fundraising and responding to fundraising asks at a kind of average level. You know, we're very very good at responsive giving to to friends who are you know running marathons or doing things for children in need and that and, and that kind of thing. Um, but but actually, that more kind of systematic. Uh, professionalized fundraising that might be necessary to really kind of unlock philanthropy at a slightly higher level always you know at least anecdotally seems like something that people look with with envy at the system in the US and think oh you know we could really learn something from there do you know is that reflected in at all in your in the in the kind of evidence you found through your research yeah, I mean, I think I'd agree with you. And I've, I've looked at, um, I wrote a, a piece on fundraising around the world where we looked at 26 countries. I did that with Professor Wendy Scaife from um, Queensland University of Technology. And yeah, there's absolutely a relationship between having, you know, professional, organised, educated, big uh, fundraising workforce and the, the money coming in. So there's no question that that um, that, that matters. Um, so, but I think you're right as well about your point that it's sort of, it's more common uh, at the at the lower level. So no one has a problem with you know, asking for five pounds or ten pounds and and saying, "Isn't that a good thing? Um, well done." Um, but once you start adding zeros on the end, um, that's when um, things start to get more complicated. Uh, and I think this does link back to some of the conversations you've had on earlier Giving Thoughts podcasts, where people have been maybe presenting a more critical view of philanthropy and they they tend to worry in fact they pretty much solely worry about the bigger donors uh, the the multiple zero donors Um, and that has a direct influence on the fundraising because if the bigger donors are getting the criticism you're making a hard job even harder because you're trying to encourage people to give large sums of money to make transformative work happen knowing that that may result in them being you know shot down in the media or you know someone writing a book about um, you know their why they're you know the problems with their giving. No one ever takes a pot shot at a smaller donor. So I think there is these these issues are all connected. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm sure we'll we'll come on to to that a bit more in a minute because I think the it's an interesting time to be kind of uh, researching or talking about philanthropy because as you say, there is a kind of has been a kind of groundswell of of criticism, which is a lot of which has always been there historically, and it goes in you know in waves. And we're I think at the moment on the kind of crest of a wave. Um, around that question of kind of you know we we as a nation maybe be finding it easier to deal with the idea of fundraising at a kind of low level, but then struggling when you start maybe throwing the word philanthropy into the mix or adding zeros to it. Do you do you think that that's part of the reason maybe again that you know a lot of people say when it comes to the the culture of of big donor giving in the, in the UK we lag so far behind the US and I, I mean I have my own problems about that comparison because I think there's all sorts of elements tied up in it that are, aren't necessarily very helpful but it definitely feels that there's something at core true about the idea that they're doing something in the US that means that they they really do have a pretty um, you know amazing culture of of sort of um, reasonably big ticket philanthropy that over here we've we've got plenty, but it's nothing like that. I think that's quite right. I think both the supply and the demand are different on either side of the Atlantic, and I think they do they they go in step because it's hard to make the demand if the supply either isn't there or is worried about the reaction they'll get if they if they do give. Um, I think that in America there's an expectation that if you're at a certain level you will then have to entertain certain. Uh, requests to to support. I mean, to take one example, if you you know graduating from a university, 
in America, a sign of success is that the development office are in touch with you fairly soon, asking you to make you know, a big you know, donation. Are you the first in your class to have something named after you in your alma mater? You know, that just doesn't happen here. There aren't the resources, or certainly not in most universities, um, to be, um, for, for it to become a thing that when you, when you graduate, you might like to aim to give back a substantial gift you know, within a relatively short amount of time to, as part of your kind of display of success. That just doesn't happen here. So, um, so yeah, I think it's absolutely a mixture of supply and demand. Um, and I think that people, um, some of the research I've done in a book I wrote called The New Fundraisers was looking at how do people learn to be a fundraiser? Like it's a very odd job, really. Um, I mean, the name makes it sound like it's just raising funds. But actually, there's a huge amount of work that comes before you can make an ask. Um, you have to sort of foster a philanthropic impulse. You have to make people believe that there are philanthropically funded solutions to the problem you're talking about. Uh, you need to frame the issue and you know, explain through stories you know, what's happening and how the money will make a difference. And only then, after you've done all that fostering and framing, can you get to the, the asking. Um, so it's a very complicated job. And at the moment, you know, we don't have a workforce of people um, who've got a huge amount of experience in that, who can then teach the next generation of fundraisers. Because it's kind of an apprentice-type job. You learn by working alongside a really experienced, good fundraiser. You need to go into a meeting with a big donor and see how they handle it. And I think I worry about how much talent we might lose in fundraising in the UK by someone who's got all the kind of raw, raw talent um, and the raw materials, but they, they get taken on as a fundraiser with hugely high expectations of how much they can raise in a very short space of time no one to learn from no pipeline of, of viable donors and then you know they're either out in the rear within a year or they give up because they feel they've not you know met expectations so i think we do need to find ways to, to more quickly have a step change in the in the quality of especially major donor fundraising in the uk yeah, that's really interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. So, I mean, do you think part of that is about having more of an understanding of the kind of model of um, of kind of relationship fundraising and, and that idea that actually you can allow time for these relationships to, to develop and bed in rather than having kind of annual KPIs, which, you know, which then dictate behaviour, which is essentially at the first possible moment asking for, you know, a check for X in a way that might well kind of jeopardise the the long-term chances of, of that relationship ever going any further. Do you think we've got too much of that? Absolutely. There's some of that, and that's understandable. You know, if you're in a small charity and they finally raise the money to be able to afford a fundraiser, I, I can understand that the trustees and the CEO would, would like to see some results, you know, fairly quickly. Um, but what they're, what's happening in that scenario is that they're shifting all the responsibility for the fundraising onto the person whose job title is fundraiser. And actually, the research shows that the best fundraising organisations are ones where everybody shares that responsibility. Sure, the fundraiser is, you know, keeping the closest eye on it and doing the most kind of choreographing and organising. But everybody in the organisation is keeping an eye out for opportunities, is, is um, you know, helping with building relationships, is willing to talk to donors. So if you stick the fundraiser in a corner, you know, and, and leave them to it, they're very unlikely to succeed. Um, but if you see it as a as a charity wide responsibility, um, then I think perhaps that would help people you know go a bit more slowly um, and build those kind of relationships that do lead then to sustained uh, income over the long term. Do you, do you think there's a sense in which I was talking to Dan Flusky a while ago from the Institute of Fundraising? We were discussing whether you know. Uh, fundraising as a part of the the kind of the charity world and and a, you know necessary way of getting income has has 
ended up getting a bit of a bad rap. It's kind of the, you know the sector's dirty little secret or something. They kind of want they know they need the money, but they sort of put it over at arm's length somewhere else because they don't really want to 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 kind of engage with it or think about the the necessity of raising the money. And that and that then structurally leads to those problems where you put it so far away and give people kind of KPIs to raise money that actually you know in in the worst instances that's what leads to the the unethical behavior because people are kind of given um uh, KPIs or kind of uh, metrics that they have to work to but then they're not kind of accountable for that wider you know ethical or reputational uh, bit that relates to the to the charity do you think you know kind of fundraising has been un- unfairly pigeonholed like that yeah, that all rings very true. And I think what's what's key in what you said is this idea of needing the money. Um, and I think what one thing when we teach the history of fundraising to our students, we go right back to basic principles and say, you know, what, what is a fundraiser? You know, are they there to raise money full stop or are they there to make something good happen for which you need some money? So the money is the means to an end. Um, it's not the end in itself. Uh, and I, and a lot of times I see the light bulbs go on when we when we share those kind of readings and those kind of thoughts because it may be that a donor can offer a venue or can offer you know something else and that will equally get you to the the, the end that you wanted. So getting hung up on the monetary value um, sometimes it, only money will do. You know you can't really give a gift in kind to Cancer Research UK. You know they need money to pay for the re- for the, the labs. But very often in smaller charities the fundraiser is actually about trying to bring together all the resources that are needed so that the charity can fulfill its mission. And those resources are not necessarily money. Yeah, absolutely. The the other bit that always strikes me is that there's a sort of um, caricature that fundraising is is a job that is done by people kind of against the the will of people who, who have money. It's sort of, you know, essentially a process of trying to wring money out of unwilling participants. Whereas actually, in a lot of cases, surely there are people who want to use the money that they've got to do good and would welcome kind of being presented with opportunities to do that so actually you know the 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 power imbalance shouldn't really be there the fundraiser should be the one who's presenting them with opportunities to do something effective with their money that they would have wanted to do anyway and and that that sort of mindset often seems to to get a bit lost to me Absolutely. And so in my uh, new fundraisers book, I interview 50 very, very successful fundraisers um, and talk to them about you know, how they do what they do. And they describe exactly what you said. You know, they, their job is about helping someone with resources do you know, possibly the best thing they've ever done in their life. Um, and they see a joy in asking because they're unlocking a joy in giving. I know that sounds a little bit cheesy, but that is at its best. That's how it works. Both the fundraiser and the donor are committed to the same cause, but they've got different resources they can bring to the table to to help make that that change happen um, and donors talk this way too i was once on a panel uh, uh, an event where there was uh, we were talking about these issues and a, a, a wealthy female philanthropist said you know when fundraising is done well it's you know it gives me the chance to do the most amazing things and um, things that i'll be proud of for the rest of my life uh, things that make other people proud to know me you know when it's done badly it's eroding um, and that of course we must guard against that but yes, fundraising can unlock, unlock some of the best moments for people. And that's so far removed from how most people imagine fundraising. I think it's Ken Burnett who has this rather nice analogy where he says, you imagine that the fundraiser is twisting the arm up the back, whereas in fact, a good fundraiser has got his arm around your shoulder. And I really like that. I think that gets to the heart of the relationship fundraising that you mentioned earlier. 
Yeah, that's no, that's a, I like that. I'll definitely I'm going to steal that and use that more. <laughs> um, it it sort of you know brings to mind something else I wanted to ask you about that you've you've looked at in your work, which is about kind of the the drivers and motivations for giving. Because because actually, again, it seems like a part of the successful fundraisers toolkit actually should be to be something of an amateur psychologist because you need to understand what motivates people at all different levels of wealth and how you can kind of use opportunities to give as a way of meeting those those motivations what what it what you know in your research have you kind of found that might be give people insight into to kind of how you understand those motivations or you know what might be sort of you know surprising that that comes out of research about that Sure. So I opened the book with a vignette that I, I learned. Uh, it's a true story. When I was in Australia for the summer, um, studying philanthropy and fundraising as a visiting fellow over there. And this was a, a man who I think he'd been named Australian Fundraiser of the Year or something. So I was asking him just to tell me about you know what he did and why he was so good at it. And he gave me this example of one day when he was, you know, typically really busy day in the office, you know, every hour of the day filled with meetings. Um, and First thing in the morning, a woman, an elderly woman, walks into the charity and says to the receptionist that she's there to make a donation uh, in, in memory of her husband. And, um, you know, could she see somebody, please? So this fundraiser gets called down to reception. And, you know, you can imagine if it's you or me, we'd be thinking, my goodness, how long is this going to take? I've got a day, you know, to, to get through. Um, and so then the question is, well, what do you do in this situation? And I think most of us who are not highly skilled fundraisers would probably say to the woman, OK, you know, I gather you want to make a donation, you know, how much for and uh, what for? And instead, of course, what he did was the opposite of that. He took his time, he sat down with her, he got tea and biscuits delivered. And he just said one thing to her. He said, tell me about your husband. And of course, by asking her about the person in whom she, whose name she wanted to make this donation, he could find out everything he needed to know about what her motivation for being interested in the cause was, what roughly what kind of amounts of money you're talking about, what bit of their work might most appeal, given the story she told of their lives. And to me, that really sums up what makes a good fundraiser, that very good instinct reaction of how to handle the, that scenario. Yeah, that's I, that's really interesting, because, again, I, you know, I think um, in other examples as well, it strikes me that. But, you know, the the job wouldn't be as simple as asking people what motivates them, because actually most of us are terrible <laughs> at explaining what it is that drives us. Uh, so sort of teasing that out by having conversations that maybe come at it from a different angle, it seems much more productive to me. Yeah, ask people about their lives. I mean, I've, I've written the uh, the Million Pound Donor Report for 10 years. We produced the last one last year. So we've got a decade of of, um, of, of data on that. And um, I love the case studies that we, we wrote as part of that. Mostly people focus on the, the quant uh, data, the, you know, how much and to what. But we've got about 30 stories of people telling us you know, how they came to be a seven-figure or more philanthropist. And it's always utterly embedded in their life stories, things that happen to them as children, people that they've admired over their lives, um, good and bad experiences that have affected them and their loved ones. So it's absolutely autobiographical. And if you don't understand the story, the life story of the person you're talking to, I think you're highly unlikely to raise much money from them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a couple of other things that that, um, that I wanted to, to ask about. And we've touched on bits of this um, already. I kind of just wanted to get your sense. You know, one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, the idea that in the UK there is scope to to 
develop a stronger culture of philanthropy and you know, i'm certainly not alone in that and there are plenty of people who've kind of grappled with that question and i don't think any of us has come up with with the answer so far what's your sense of of what particular barriers there might be here in the uk to to getting the to realizing the full potential of that of kind of philanthropy here um and kind of you know what do you think we could do about it what are the the easiest policy interventions well i think that's two different questions i think what we can do about it and policy interventions i think what we can do i think we need to normalize it um i think it needs to be just what you do it already is what you do if you're if you're a relatively good person you know making a, a normal wage you know part of what you do is you know, support good causes that you care about um, as your wealth increases um, why would that change um, and yet it does seem to become more problematic to give we've already touched on this a little bit um, you know the, the reaction you get from whatever audience you're worried about you know uh, the media politicians commentators uh, the reaction uh, you get to your giving becomes more and more critical the more you give uh, and I don't think that's helpful in a society where we're trying to encourage people to give. So I think we need to normalise it and we need to deproblematize it. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're, I'm picking up on that. You know, we've mentioned already that the the idea that the there is sort of. Uh, there's always been, I think, you know, certain critiques and criticisms of philanthropy or kind of scepticism or uh, cynicism about people with wealth. But at the moment, you know, we, as you reference, I've kind of talked to various people on on the podcast who have kind of put forward, I think, some of the, you know, the more kind of considered critiques of of philanthropy, and some of them raise really important questions about inequality and its role in democracy. But but I, the one thing I wonder is, you know, a lot of that comes from the US and the context is quite different. Um, the assumption that somehow we were all sitting around kind of uh, giving rounds of applause to philanthropists before people came along and said that maybe we should, you know, step back and criticise them. Does that bit doesn't ring quite as true to me over here? Because I think we've always been pretty critical of wealth and had much more negative attitudes towards it and towards the idea of philanthropy. So actually, if we're starting from that point, and then we kind of add on top of that a, a whole host of, of other criticisms do do we run the risk that we're gonna you know kind of this whole thing will be dead in the water before we even get a chance to to develop that culture do, do you worry about that I, I worry about that a lot and, and I'm a big fan of Rob Reich's work and I enjoyed his podcast with you but I do think it's a particularly American experience um, I just don't recognize this idea that um, currently in the UK, the default response to a big donation is unthinking praise and gratitude. I mean, my, my fundraising colleagues would laugh if they heard <laughs> that, you know, um, that's simply, I mean, look at any tabloid uh, any day of the week when there's been a big donation. That doesn't happen over here. I think the best example, just to show the contrast, is when, when Bill Gates and Warren Buffett put together their philanthropy. I think that was 2006. Um, I did. A, I analysed all the media coverage to that um, to that announcement, both in the US and in the UK, and it was a gloriously kind of stage managed announcement. They did it in the Carnegie Library in New York, so you had this kind of historic philanthropic context. Then you had Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett there, and a room full of, I presume, mostly American journalists, because it was in in New York. And my understanding is that the journalists themselves were kind of sort of giving a standing ovation, you know, not quite there to objectively report on it. But it was such an, an astonishing announcement that the world's second richest man was going to basically give his money to the world's richest man and together it would all go to philanthropy. I mean, it was it was quite extraordinary. So the so the American news coverage was, you know, this is like a Hollywood story, I think was one of the quotes from it. All very, very positive and, and uh, encouraging and, and, you know, uncritically praiseworthy, as, as Rob Reich would say. 
However, here in the UK, that was not the, the way it was reported. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, I think it was from The Guardian, said something like, when the world's second richest man gives all his money to the world's first richest man, we do well to count our spoons. <laughs> and I don't even really know what that means. I've, I've tried to look it up. I think, you know, there is some sort of a, 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 a regional kind of explanation of that phrase, but it, it basically means there's something dodgy going on, isn't there? Like what, what they're actually doing. And that's, to me, really summarizes the cultural difference either side of the Atlantic. But over here, uh, the other coverage would be like, well, what else could they do with their money? You know, coat themselves in treacle and roll around in it? You know, what else are they going to do? You know, I mean, you cannot say that this is an overly grateful, praising response. This is a very cynical um, response that you get in the UK. And I really do believe that feeds directly into our lower levels of giving, um, I think it's a genuine barrier for people, especially perhaps the newly rich, to think, well, gosh, if I get involved in that, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen? Uh, I think if your family's been philanthropic for generations, like, say, the Sainsbury's, I don't, I don't see it affecting people like them. But, you know, new wealth, you look around you and think, wow, you, you, you do this, what you think is a generous thing, and you get these, um, you know, these shots taken at you. I, to me, that would be a barrier. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. It's kind of it, it's easy to get caught up in a lot of this discussion at the moment, and it's exciting for for people like me because seeing issues that I've kind of cared about for the last ten years or so suddenly becoming quite mainstream is is on the one hand frustrating, and on the other hand very very exciting. But we we do need to be careful, I think, to make sure we we kind of take into account the the elements that are very different in in the US context. One one kind of final thought um uh, before we wrap up because I don't want to to go too long on this. Um I was at an event not long ago. I think think you were there too, the Beacon Collaborative um event. And this is a kind of big discussion about what can be done to get more of a, a culture of philanthropy here in in the UK and it's sort of philanthropists and people who advise them and others there. But one of the themes that, that I very much picked up from that was a question about whether the, the lexicon we're using is is not helpful. And actually, the word philanthropy, certainly here in the UK, is either not understood or where it is understood, actively off-putting. Do you, do you have any sympathy with that? Oh, it's an awful word, philanthropy. <laughs> I think my mum thinks I study stamp collecting. <laughs> you know, it's awful. Um, my view, though, is that we should try and reclaim it rather than change it. Um, because it is a good word it's got good roots you know love of mankind what's not to like about that um i think it should be understood more broadly um i I don't like the way that the word philanthropy is only applied to a very small tiny elite of givers you know my grandma's a charitable donor but bill gates is a philanthropist well why you know her donation is quite possibly a larger percentage of her income than many people who get called philanthropists so i worry about that very partial use of the word philanthropy um, and I worry that it's only used in terms of money rather than giving other resources that uh, achieve uh, the, the end goal that, that's being aimed for. Uh, but I do think we can try and, you know, there, there is a, you know, there are examples of other words that have successfully been reclaimed. Um, so I would quite like to, to reclaim uh, the word philanthropy as well. Yeah, I'd certainly endorse that. Apart from anything else, as soon as you start to ask the question of what what other word we might use, you go down a terrible <laughs> rabbit hole. So, um, listen, Beth, it's been absolutely great talking to you and great to to get you on the podcast. Um, is there anything you want to to kind of flag up uh, or plug uh, to people before you go? Oh well, if you're going to ask me to invite, I mean, we we are open for applications for the the Masters in Philanthropic Studies starting in September, where you get to discuss all of these issues and many more with me and my wonderful team of, of colleagues who teach uh, on the course so come and study the history psychology legal anthropological sociological aspects of philanthropy and um, i think everyone who's on the course um has spoken very 
highly of it um, and it's enriched their personal and their professional lives and we would welcome more applications from Giving Thoughts podcast listeners. Right then. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation uh, between me and Beth. Um, I certainly did. Um, it only really remains to to say uh, I'll put links in the show notes to some of the things Beth was talking about and the Centre on Philanthropy at the University of Kent and all that kind of thing. Uh, if you're interested in people talking about philanthropy more broadly, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Uh, if you've got any ideas for people I could interview in the future or themes we could cover on the podcast, uh, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, like, subscribe, tell all your friends, leave us a nice review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. And other than that, I will see you next time. Bye!